You're listening to the Business with Purpose podcast with your host, Molly Stillman of stillbeingmolly.com. This podcast takes you behind the scenes with some of the world's most generous entrepreneurs, from the CEOs of mission-driven brands to directors of small community nonprofits and everything in between. Molly is sitting down with men and women who believe in changing the world not only through their personal lives, but also their professional careers. And now, here's Molly. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Business with Purpose podcast. My guest today is Lisa Moiseva. I know, isn't that fun to say? Lisa Moiseva, she is the founder of Globin. Lisa was born and raised in Moscow, Russia, came to the United States to actually swim in college, and ultimately decided that she had a passion for social entrepreneurship. She started Globin with along with a few other people in December of 2012, and we're going to get all into her story and learn more about the positive impact that they are making on the world. I hope you guys enjoy my conversation with Lisa. Hey, Lisa, welcome to the show. Hi, Molly. Thank you so much for having me. It is such a pleasure to speak with you. And before we started recording, uh, Mm -hmm. we found out that we ended up going to college really close together, which is funny since you're in California, but you went to Old Dominion. I went to Christopher Newport in Virginia. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I love it. Just what a small world. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, I can't wait to find out a little bit more about you and your work with Globin. Um, But what I have all of my guests do when we start this show is to give me what I say, just the Lisa 101. So Mm -hmm. tell me a little bit about your story. Tell me, uh, you know, where you're from and and all the kind of things that happened to get you to where you are today. Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, So I'm originally from Moscow, Russia. I came to U.S. um, as a student athlete uh, back in 2006. So I actually swam for Old Dominion University. um, um, And I was a scholarship athlete there for four years when I was doing my undergrad there. And my undergrad was in uh, international relations. Oh, wow. And um, yeah, so I always wanted um, to be in a nonprofit social sector Um, and I kind of like slowly uh, went from you know I want to work for UN or World Bank to I want to work with more smaller like non-profit organization grassroots organizations right Um, that's why I interned with a few non-profits right after college I volunteered for American Red Cross and then I got a a position with the SIP network, which is a network of microfinance organizations mm-hmm. uh, in DC. I worked there for almost a year, um, and then I decided to go back to college and do my MBA because oh, yeah. I felt like I needed something more practical to com- like complement my you know international studies degree. And um, back then, I was uh, I, I got introduced to Muhammad Yunus. Mm-hmm. Not sure if you're familiar with him, but he's actually no. the father of microfinance. He started Grameen Bank in Bangladesh oh, with the yeah. idea that you can um, give microloans to uh, very poor people and they will pay you back. Yeah. And these microloans are super impactful on their lives. Yeah. Um, so I was super inspired uh, by his ideas and his other idea is social business. You know, the concept of that you can have a business that is exists not just for the purpose of making money, but for the purpose of um, solving any given social problem. For example, poverty alleviation or water crisis or education, things like that. Yeah. So that's why I kind of wanted to do MBA. So I have business skills um, to go along with my um, humanities knowledge, you know, international relations, nonprofit experience. 
So yeah, I did uh, my MBA in finance, and that's when I got introduced to impact investing, right? So investing for not just for financial returns, but for um, uh, social impact returns. Yeah. And in in the middle of that, I um, when Globin was um, officially founded in December 2012, that's when I met uh, our co-founders Vlad and David back in Moscow. Mm-hmm. Um, I was actually, I founded also. Um, um, uh, online community for Russian-speaking social entrepreneurs because social business, social entrepreneurship was pretty new for Russia. The sector is very small there still. Yeah. And I can uh, organize meetups uh, whenever I come visit there. And Vlad and David come to one of my social entrepreneurs meetups in Moscow. And um, that's when I started slowly working with Globin, you know, while still finishing my degree, uh, my MBA. Uh, and... Um, I also went to Morocco, met with artisans there. Um, yeah, and then I slowly uh, kind of transitioned in, into working more and more with Globe in social media, marketing, all digital marketing, business development, and things like that. So, uh, and then I moved to California just about two and a half years ago oh, to wow. be full time. Mm-hmm. Now, so I want to back up a little bit. Um, yeah. So, you know, obviously you were growing up in, in Moscow and you were swimming. What was the initial, was it just that there weren't collegiate opportunities to swim in Russia like there were in the United States? What was the, what made you decide to come to the U.S.? Well, uh, so it's actually in Russia, we have a little bit of different kind of athletic programs. So uh, there is not uh, a lot of uh, college athletes, right? Yeah. So you're not, uh, you can't stay uh, on professional level and still go to university. Uh, it's not as competitive in Russia. So most of the people, um, unless they're like really, really good and they're like on the national team level, yeah. they by the time they go to college, they quit sports and I um, I was not on the national team level in Russia I was more like on the Moscow team level mm-hmm. um, so I kind of saw the opportunity to come to US as my only opportunity to still go to school uh, you know seriously right not like to miss half of the classes and things like that yeah. and still uh, continue my swimming career uh, pretty seriously because I, I was still very motivated and I wanted to be an Olympic champion. Yeah. <laughs> but, so I saw it as my own opportunity to do both because yeah. I also liked, uh, you know, I liked school, my, my you know, my whole life. I also was into school a lot. I loved taking classes. So I did not want to miss it, you know. Yeah. Now, what do you think, when did you kind of realize that you had a passion and a love and just a heart for social entrepreneurship? What was it, was there anything in your childhood that just kind of gave you sort of that, you know, it's funny when I talk to a lot of different people who are into social entrepreneurship or work with nonprofits or anything like that, I kind of go back and I've, I find that in their childhood, they were always the one who were like helping the kid on the playground who fell or mm-hmm. like, or helping the kid who got picked on in class or, you know, they were the ones that were like doing fundraisers for the local animal shelter, you know, mm-hmm. um, what was it, you know, kind of early on in life that maybe made you realize that that was something you were really into? And when did you realize as an adult, you know, okay, I'm not going to be an Olympic swimmer, but mm-hmm. <laughs> um, what was it that eventually led you, you know, I think this is something I want to pursue for a living. Mm-hmm. Well, I love talking about this uh, because it actually has mostly to do with Angelina Jolie. 
<laughs> Angelina so Jolie. She was uh, the person who inspired me indirectly, obviously. So the problem is that, like, I don't have that those stories that you know. Oh, I organize like fundraising event yeah. for like I don't know kids' charity or something. Because the 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 reason is that in Russia, social sector was tiny yeah. uh, when I was living. Uh, when I was I left Russia back in 2006, like. People are not aware that it exists. Nonprofit sector exists, but it's so tiny that the general population is simply not aware of it. Wow. Yeah. So, like, I did not grow up with, like, oh, you know, like, famous charities doing fundraisers, nothing like that. Yeah. Uh, but... Um, you know, I used to love reading some kind of like celebrity magazines back, back when I was a teenager and a kid. Yeah. And um, yeah, Angelina Jolie, you know, back then, like in 2004 or 2006, she started her kind of nonprofit and UN work. Yeah. So, yeah, that was kind of the first point for me when I was like, huh, that's interesting. Um, and maybe I should do that. That was just kind of my introduction to the nonprofit world, UN world, international relations, things like that. Yeah. And um, also, I stumbled upon a book about Rwandan genocide uh, back on when I was like 17 or 16, um, just by myself. And uh, do you remember what the book was called? I forgot what it was called. There are multiple books on that, but yeah. I can't remember. Yeah, but um, it's a, you know, personal story, but like based, of course, on uh, real life events. And I was really touched by that. So um, that's when I, uh, through, through my, some like college projects, I started kind of digging into that, you know, like, I did, did like some geography report on some African countries yeah. and, you know, the socioeconomic situations there and like, you know, poverty levels or like Democratic Republic of Congo, you know how rich it is in minerals and people are just living in such poor conditions. So that, that was those moments to come that came together that, you know, kind of, that's when I decided that I want to create social impact and I want to help people, yeah. not just people in need, but people who are in that, the most dire need, you know what I mean? Because I felt yeah. like that's where I can make the most impact. Yeah. I love that. I, I mean, it, I it's you know so many people kind of have different stories as to how they got into mm-hmm. things but I I can honestly say I think you're the first person that uh mm-hmm. wanted to start a nonprofit after reading a celebrity magazine about Angelina yeah. Jolie. <laughs> I love it. I think that's great and I think it shows that there are so many different things that can mm-hmm. impact uh mm-hmm. people and just the influence that we have as you know on others um to just mm-hmm. raise awareness and Exactly. You know, bring attention to these to these issues. So when I want to kind of fast forward now a little bit mm-hmm. to when you went back to Moscow and you met and it, you said it was uh, Vladimir and who was David and David. David. Mm-hmm. And so what brought you back to was it just you were going back to visit or and then how did you get connected with them? And, and ultimately, why did you guys decide to start Globin? Um. So I was, my whole family is back in Russia still, mm-hmm. in Moscow. So I, um, yeah, I was kind of in, in between, you know, I finished working uh, in D.C. Uh, and it was, I think I, yeah, that was before I started my MBA. So I had a few months 
in between. So that's when I'm like, okay, I got this cool experience um, with the SIP not to work in DC. Like um, I did online community management there. Like, you know what? Uh, let me put those skills to work. And I started that website uh, for social entrepreneurs in Russia. Yeah. And the meetups were just starting becoming popular in the US. They were totally new in Russia. So I started doing that and like reached out to a few people online uh, who, who were already working in the nonprofit sector in Russia. And, um, yeah, so I just started, whenever I go visit my family, I would organize a meetup and a few people will come. Of course, it's nothing huge, like, you know, 10 to 20 people, but very interesting and inspiring. I love meeting people, you know, I love connecting people, um, um, like, those meetups, I was hoping, you know, if I can bring few people together and, you know, they can maybe discover some new ideas and maybe start a project together. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, Vlad and David, they just, um, I think through um, through common friends, they just heard about those meet, uh, that meetup and they just show, showed up there. Yeah. Um, and that's how... Um, that's how we met. Um, at that point, Glo- I think they were already like starting working on Globin slowly. And the funny thing is that uh, both Vlad and David, they're also like super in love with Mohammed Yunus. Yeah. So um, we're like his biggest uh, fans. So yeah, that's um, so how Globin idea was born. Inspiration was Mohammed Yunus, right? Uh, his idea of social business. And the second part of the inspiration is actually comes from Kiva. Have you heard of Kiva microloans? Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. So on Kiva, you can uh, give small loans, like we, me or you, we can give small loans to uh, people all over the world, to entrepreneurs. And what we've noticed was that uh, a lot of these entrepreneurs are actually uh, artisans, right, who want to start or scale their own business. Yeah. And what we realized was that... Uh, these people, you know, we can give them a loan to start their small business, but they don't have access to the global marketplace, right? Yeah. The only people who are they're selling to is, you know, uh, their community, or maybe they can travel a couple of hours to the um, market in a bigger city. Um, or sometimes they would sell their goods to a middleman. Um, yeah. And in this situation, they would not be getting the best price for their products. So that's where Globin idea came from. You know, we wanted to be that connector to connect these remote artisans to the global marketplace. Yeah. So you guys started Globin in 2012. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When you guys started, was it were you guys focusing on one particular community or one particular artisan group or how did you guys source the different artisan groups and find mm-hmm. the people that you guys wanted to initially buy from? Mm-hmm. Um, so our other co-founder Anastasia, she uh, kind of as a test project, she went to Mexico to Oaxaca, Mexico, and that's where uh, Oaxaca is still kind of in the core of Globin. Mm-hmm. And she met a few artisans there um, and uh, bought a few products and tried to like kind of sell it on Etsy just to test the market. Yeah. Um, but that. So we changed our business model quite a few times. So originally we were uh, a true marketplace of artisans, right? Yeah. We, were this, we envisioned ourselves as this tech platform uh, where, like Etsy, Etsy for developing countries, right? Yeah. So uh, we would um, upload, you know, uh, Anastasia traveled uh, around Mexico. We had a country manager in Russia, Kyrgyzstan, um, and where uh, these country managers would upload artisan profiles 
uh, onto Globin website. Uh, we also worked with a few partner organizations um, like Global Goods, for example, where we uploaded their products on our platform. We created artisan profiles and um, added all their different products that they had. So the idea was like Etsy exactly. So you can buy one-off products uh, from these artisans and the artisans would drop ship them to you, to the customer. Oh, okay. Yeah. So that was the idea, uh, but it did not really scale. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, Etsy is a great idea and most of the artisans on Etsy, they're, you know, based in U.S. or in kind of like developed countries, right? Mm-hmm. In Globin, it was not the case, you know. Um, I met um, with a Peace Corps volunteer in Morocco who was working uh, with a lady uh, making jewelry, but it was literally in the middle of Morocco. Her jewelry was pretty popular with our customers, but you would literally order one pair of her jewelry, of her earrings, and then she would uh, have to ship it to the customer to custom make it first and then ship it to the customer so it it would take like at least a few weeks for you to get your earrings so it was not the great customer experience the price points were a little uh too high as well and um we were not creating as much impact as we would love to create and that's where the subscription box model came in yeah and what what made you guys decide to or what made you guys realize i think this subscription box model is going to be really where it's at well, um, we started subscription, I believe, in 2013, right? When like uh, it was just picking up. There were a lot of um, big subscription boxes there, like Ipsy and Birchbox, of course. Yeah. And uh, that's when we kind of uh, thought about and we realized that it can be much more scalable and much more impactful for artisans and much more appealing to customers. So the reasons that uh, with subscription model... We can place bulk uh, bulk orders, uh, big orders that will provide artisans with at least like month uh, of employment, right? Yeah. And then we will save a lot of money on shipping across the world, and uh, we can pass on the savings to the customer. So that's what was the thinking behind it. Uh, but when it really started scaling was back in, I think, uh, early 2015, actually. Uh, we switched the way we curate products. We um, uh, started looking for more practical products, something that will appeal to um, American consumers. Um, you know, beautiful artisan goods, but they also have to fit in the, our ho- regular home decor, right? Yeah. So that's when we started really um, started seeing growth. Because, um, you know, if with a subscription box, you have to send people something that they can use in their everyday life. You cannot be just sending kind of small gifts or souvenirs. It just becomes too much at some point. Yeah. One of the things that I love so much, because I have gotten a couple Globin boxes. Yeah. And what I love so much, I mean, you guys obviously on the site, you have, you know, it's sort of just the general shop where you can shop, mm-hmm. you know, kind of yeah. these ethically made artisan, beautiful artisan products. But I also love that with the artisan box, you have sort of these different. They're they have different themes, mm-hmm. and they're so. Some of them are so unique. I mean, and things that you would Did just you never know that think. In the US oh goodness! Alone, we spend thirty-five. <laughs> oh, you open that website. I was looking at the website. I'm what gonna... <laughs> you could empower women How do I... worldwide oh, no. <laughs> with your daily purchasing? Okay, well. <laughs> oh goodness! I don't even think I want to edit that out because I think it's hilarious. Because I was actually pulling up the website because I was like, oh, these are these are so fun. 
<laughs> so fun and so creative. And there goes the website. So, hey, folks, that was like a real introduction <laughs> to <laughs> the Globin website. It was just really immersing you in, mm. in making you feel like you were a part of the site. Uh, Do you like that? We just, we just, uh, you know, <laughs> trying this out. <laughs> I did. I just didn't know how to turn it off. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll have to work on that. Oh, I love it. Um, this is real. This is real life, folks. Um, but yeah, but what I love about it is that there's so many different themes. So you've got um, the kitchen box. So it's got all these great fair trade and ethically made products that fit in your kitchen. Um, and then you've got the laundry box. You've got, I mean, it's everything from a laundry bag to, you know, mm-hmm. dryer balls. And then you have, um, you know, there's like a, a birth, I think there's one for like a birthday that comes with like a really beautiful like celebrate yeah the celebrate box Mm -hmm. um i mean there's just so many different ones so not only are they great for just sort of you know every day if it's something that you Mm want to incorporate into your own life but they make great gifts i mean they're just they're beautiful Mm -hmm. and everything is so unique Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we tried to combine this practicality with uniqueness of products, right? Yeah. And, um, yeah, I think our trademark uh, and what we really are proud of is the curation. My colleague does the curation, and we what we tr- try to bring to our customers is this uh, comprehensive experience, right? So, for example, one of our most popular boxes is Cozy Box, right? Oh, it yeah. It has this beautiful hand-painted mug from Tunisia. It has the... F- cozy fair trade scarf from thailand and then it comes with uh, fair trade cocoa powder from ghana and of course our signature basket right um but yeah laundry is like a totally different theme but and people were like what laundry you know but when we brought this uh, awesome you know huge laundry bag from uh, i think it's from cambodia um and you know the wool dryer balls and the soap nuts from nepal people like soap nuts nobody even heard of that but yeah it's a pure, uh, you know, alternative, uh, organic alternative to a detergent. So people really love that theme. Yeah, this I think they're just so unique. Every, like I said, everything is so beautiful. Um, but then I like that you also, again, you have that option to just kind of, um, it's just a great sort of one-stop marketplace for mm-hmm. just beautifully made. And it's just, it's really, I think, very, very clear how intentional you guys are with the products you select. And they all just sort of fit together. Even though they're made by different artisan groups from all mm-hmm. over the world, they just, they very much flow together um, and very much, I feel like, fit that Globin brand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, thank you. That's that's definitely our goal. <laughs> what has been, um, this is sort of a two-part question, what has been one of the biggest uh, challenges you guys have faced? I mean, like you said, you kind of, you changed your business model a couple times in mm-hmm. the first couple of years of business. But what's what do you think has been the biggest challenge overall for you guys as a, as a company? And what do you think has been, I don't know if necessarily what has been easiest, but what has just really come very naturally for you guys? And what do you guys feel like you really excel at? What are you really good at? Well, let's start at the la- the last part, the, um, what we excel at. And I think I already kind of mentioned it. I think that curational aspect. Yeah. Um, we, we It was definitely a learning process, as I mentioned. You know, the way the artisan box started, uh, it was more like a souvenir types of products. There was not that much curation. We were just like, like okay, we want to make impact. Let's order whatever this artisan has, whatever they uh, can make, you know, and ship it to customers. But... Um, 
then we learn that uh, to scale the artisan box, we have to do like very rigorous curation rate. Yeah. So that's where we're excelling at, I believe. And um, we do get, you know, we do customer service every, uh, surveys every month uh, to, we can compare exactly um, the artisan boxes, how they compare against each other. Uh, we know what people like in terms of products. We have a very strong Facebook community where we can just get customers' feedback on products. So that's where we excel at. Uh, but at the same time, one of the challenges is that a lot of times we have to turn down some artisans because their products do not fit our standards yeah Yeah. you know and that's uh it's very hard for us you know i mean we are here to help artisans um and yeah sometimes we just um we we have to explain that you know uh we would love to help you We, we want to continue the conversation we tell them exactly what we want exactly what our customers want so with some groups it can take a bit longer to develop the products that fit into the artisan box right yeah yeah um but, yeah, we also explain to the artisan groups that, you know, if we include uh, this product that is, you know, below our standards, we know that customers will not like it and it will hurt us as a business and it will mean that we won't be able to order from them again. You know what I mean? So it doesn't benefit anyone. Um, so that has been pretty hard for us. But um, another kind of challenge, I think, is that, uh, you know, s- scaling uh, artisan goods, right? Yeah. Um, we are at the scale on, like, one of, I think, uh, our orders are one of the biggest in the industry, in the mm-hmm. fair trade industry, handmade mm-hmm. industry, right? Um, and, uh, yes, yeah, sometimes we have to give artisans, like, really, really long lead times to complete their orders because the items are handmade, right? It's right. not like we are regular subscription box and we can be like, oh, we just need like a few thousand of these things um, made in a factory in China or something like yeah. this. You know, no. We have to work with artisans on their terms uh, to give them enough lead times, um, to do quality control too. So that has been challenging, challenging in terms of like how we are scaling and we have to make sure that artisans are able to scale with us. And that's actually one of the reasons that in 2017, we actually changing our sourcing strategy a bit. We used to have only one theme per month, uh, a new theme per month that we introduced, but uh, from from actually this month, we're doing introducing two new themes per month, right? Oh, wow. So we are ordering slightly less from each artisan group of uh, one product, um, just so that, you know, because they cannot handle like a bigger, twice as big of an order. You right. know what I mean? Right. And we have to make sure that uh, our customers get our products on time. Yeah. So that was kind of our decision, like how we can work with artisans' capacity and still uh, provide our, all of our customers with, with new boxes. Yeah, that's such a and that's a tough balance. You know, just in all of the conversations I've had with so many different uh, fair trade companies mm-hmm. um, and social entrepreneurs, one of the biggest the biggest balances that we have to strike is that balance of not. Um, sacrificing, you know, the what's important for mm-hmm. also being smart and business savvy. So, exactly. you know, obviously we don't want to find ourselves all, yeah, like you were saying, like all of a sudden kind of getting into this where we're just going to go to a factory in China mm-hmm. um, or, you know, finding ourselves like bordering on, you know, sort of that fast fashion, fast, um, pro- you know, fast goods 
culture. Um, so we want to really focus on more intentionality with our purchases and our buying and things like that. But then we also, you know, as either business owners or purchasers or whatever, you know, there's a reality to, you know, we need to make money <laughs> so, mm-hmm. or else we yeah. won't stay in business to be able to support these artisans and exactly. things like that. So it's a, it's definitely a challenge. And that's a, something I hear across the board when I talk to um, especially uh, ethical business owners. Yeah. And, and something, um, this is this kind of feedback we actually get a lot from uh, not our customers, but, you know, uh, wannabe customers or people who, like, see our ads or learn about us. And they're like, oh, how much uh, of your profits you give to charity or you give to the artisans? And I'm like, we are not a charity. Right. You know, we are a fair trade business. So we do them by uh, by empowering artisans with uh, by paying them fair wages. Right. You know? right. And I feel like... Um, yeah, like we all, like the fair trade uh, businesses, so we have to do a lot of work still to educate the consumer about uh, this industry, yeah. you know, because a lot of times people gravitate towards, you know, for example, like one for one model. It's something super easy to understand. And that's what people gravitate to, yeah. you know, uh, which is great, you know, for companies like Tom's, you know, it's like it was such a cool, like easy to understand idea. Uh, but yeah, like fair trade is a little bit more complicated and mm-hmm. people are like, yeah, tell me exactly how much you're paying artisans. You should be paying them like five times more. I'm like, uh, yeah, it's a great idea. I would love to pay artisan like $50 for each product that they make, but we won't be able to scale right. at all. You know, there's like, unfortunately, I would will not be able to find like even 100 customers who are willing to pay, I don't know, like $200 for one product. Right. You know? So yeah, that's where people have hard time understanding understanding that you know yeah we are still a business we are still have to somehow make it work you know yeah and the other thing that's really interesting that i've learned as i've kind of gotten further into just working with ethical brands and just trying to educate myself is mm-hmm. um you know even when you look at depending on where the artisan group is located you know mm-hmm. pricing and what you yeah. pay a fair wage is going to look different in Rwanda or Kenya versus what a fair wage is going to look like in Bangladesh or yes. China or Mexico or Peru, you know, or Vietnam. I mean, all these mm-hmm. countries are going to have because their economies are so different. Mm-hmm. And, you know, whereas $5 a week here in the United States would mm-hmm. leave you on the streets, $5 a week in a rural village in Africa is mm-hmm. game changing, you know, because they're living on, you know, their their cost of living is much different. Mm-hmm. Um, and so and the other thing, too, that I've learned that I didn't know is a lot of times you have to be really careful. I guess I'm trying to figure out the best way to word mm-hmm. slash explain this. Um, but Okay, so for example, on my la- I actually went to Kenya last month, and oh, wow. um, this was my third time going, but this time was a little bit different. And one of the things that we were doing um, was we were doing some visit visits with some artisans um, in some in some of the slums in and around Nairobi. And mm-hmm. one of the days we were there, we met with um, three different women, two of whom, and they they all lived in the slum, um, but two of them had jobs through an artisan group. And mm-hmm. one of them did not. She was unemployed. Mm-hmm. And so what, um, and we spent time with each of them and just got to know them and their story. But one of the things that was really interesting was all three of them lived in the slum. 
but mm-hmm. the two with a job were, I mean, yes, their their home was in a slum, but it was clean. Mm-hmm. They had, mm-hmm. um, one of them had a refrigerator and a microwave in her house, what? which I mean, wow. is in a slum is, I mean, yeah. unheard of. Mm-hmm. And she had a refrigerator, and a mic- so she was able to buy a refrigerator and a microwave. I mean, again, the houses were clean. She was able to put her children through school. She was able to put food on her table. She was, I mean, she just talked about how empowered and happy she was. Then we walked, um, I mean, maybe three quarters of a mile to another part of the slum to a woman's house who did not have a job. Mm -hmm. And she uh, has a lot of, a lot of challenges that she's facing. Um, But she... You know, she was not able to get a job because of some of and an basically an accident that had happened last year. So she's not mm-hmm. she's not able to get work. She's not able to pay for her kids um, education. She's not able to pay for food. She's I mean, her house was very dirty. It was very dark. Um, you know, it just there was such a stark contrast between somebody living in a slum with a job and somebody living in a slum without one. Mm-hmm. And it was just the simple fact that. That job and that steady income empowers somebody and empowers Mm -hmm. them. And there's this misconception that like, oh, well, we want to give all these people. I'm not saying that you you want somebody to live in a slum their entire life, Mm -hmm. but there's a difference between living in a slum with no food, no, you know, no access to clean water, not able to send your kids to school and just feeling very desperate and living in a slum. But you're happy, you're empowered, you have clean water, you have a refrigerator and a microwave in your house. Um, You're able to send your kids to school. Like that's a very different lifestyle. And so Mm -hmm. it can actually be damaging though to somebody to pay them too much in a slum because then they become a target. Mm-hmm. So it's yeah. it's giving them sort of those stepping stones because what we were talking to with the two of the women who had jobs and they were still living in the slum, like we were talking with them about, you know, what's your vision, you know, two, three, four, five years from now. Mm-hmm. And and they were able to, to talk about their dreams of eventually, you know, becoming a wholesaler and scaling their business and things like that. Wow. Like that is when you, when you live in a slum, they don't you don't think about tomorrow. <laughs> You think about right Mm -hmm. now. You think about Mm -hmm. this minute and this hour. You think about where the next food's going to come from. Um, But to start getting them to the point where they're thinking in the future of how are they going to get out of the slum ultimately, you know, those, you know, in the last couple of years, they've been able to meet those immediate immediate needs, food, clean water, Mm -hmm. schooling, clothing, you know, a roof over their heads that's paid for, things like that. And then now they're able to, to see a future down the road where they're like, Oh yes. You know, I see myself moving out of the slum into an apartment in Nairobi and I see Mm -hmm. myself scaling my business, things like that. Like it's not an overnight fix. No. And that's, it takes Mm -hmm. education for people to really understand that. Cause a lot of times people just, they, they don't understand. They're like, well, well, they live in a slum still. So they're not being paid a fair wage. I'm like, no, that's Mm -hmm. not, that's not how it works. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I I so agree with that. So yeah, there's so much educational work we still need to to do, you know, to let people know how things work. And yeah, um, unfortunately not everyone is able to travel around the world and kind of see these conditions um, with their own eyes. But 
And the important thing is that is uh, you know the fact that the mother is making fair wage and yeah. is able to put her kids to school. You know, it's like it will trickle down. You know, yeah. that her kids will have a totally different future. Um, and we actually had a very similar experience. My colleagues they went to visit our artisans in Oaxaca. Yeah. And you know we have a few questions that we wanted to ask them. And yeah, one of those questions was like, oh, do you have dreams? What's your vision for the future? And in uh, a lot of times. Uh, you know, uh, artisan women, uh, the weavers who you know just started recently with us, working with us, they they, they don't even think that way. Uh, how you mentioned, right? They think about today, maybe next week, but like a, a, like future vision, dreams. It's kind of like a foreign concept to them. Yeah. While you know, um, artisans like our artisan coordinator who lives in Oaxaca and uh, she actually um, a weaver herself, but she doesn't make baskets. She makes beautiful like, camera straps and tote bags uh you know she's like she's so entrepreneurial um you know she's like i want to have a warehouse or i want to you know get a computer or like i want to have a smartphone so i can talk with you uh, you know um be connected and uh, reply to your messages all the time you know what i mean it's just a different mind shift you know and it's yeah just a small fair wage which can be like two dollars per per day or five dollars per day i don't know you know yeah uh it just changes people's mindset it really really does it really does now i want to um ask you when you created you know obviously the fair trade this is something we talk about a lot on this podcast Mm -hmm. and i talk about with my friends all the time is just how in the united states i really feel like in the last five years or so there's sort of been this shift for more awareness for buying our things ethically. I mean, ever since the Rana Plaza complex um, disaster, um, I feel like there's starting to be that more, I guess people are starting to pay more attention to like where Mm -hmm. their stuff is or how their stuff is made. And um, I I feel like that's going to continue the shift in the future and kind of what we're doing, what we've been doing with the food industry where people care about, you know, Mm -hmm. organic and non-GMO and, you know, local farms and things like that. I feel like there's going to be sort of that shift in the future with clothing and goods. When you started these meetups in Russia um, and you, and you talked about how, just social entrepreneurship and nonprofits and and just kind of that discussion of fair trade was so rare in -hmm. Russia what was the reception when you created that and how to you know I just I'm so to be honest I'll say I'm very ignorant and very um, just unaware of kind of what Russian culture is like in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. so how what was the reception when you created that how do Russians kind of feel and respond to social entrepreneurship and Mm -hmm. do you see you know is it still something that's very unheard of or is it growing you know what what's the culture like there when it comes to this stuff Um, yeah so the people who kind of discovered my website and uh, came to the meetups they they kind of were already in that nonprofit social business community and what I found interesting was that people who were in uh, in this community, uh, they actually had um, had some experience with like living abroad or studying abroad, like uh, either in US or Europe. So I, I feel like that's where they got introduction to these concepts, right? Um, yeah. And but the the sphere, the social business sphere, like has definitely been growing uh, a lot in the few last few years. There's you know investors there. There's social business conference there, microfinance conference. It's just. Um, 
yeah, it's it's just not um, the general population is still not very aware of it. You know, and it's very niche. Yeah, you know, yeah. you kind of you have to be in that sphere to be aware of it. Um, so, for example, like I tried to, you know, invite a few of my um, school uh, school friends um, to those events, but. You know, if you're not into in in that uh, community already, like oh, I don't care. You know what I mean? I just have to make yeah. my own yeah. um, living, and it's like I don't have time for other things. Uh, yeah. There was also a lot of um, um, kind of Russia is famous for its corruption, right? So there is uh, this kind of bad perception of charity too. At least it used to be. I think it's getting much much better because there's more and more Russian celebrities who are starting doing like awesome cool things yeah um but yeah before like it was like charity it's like oh you're raising uh you know money for like uh, kids charities that yeah you probably will pocket like all of them for yourself you know what i mean so people were like very skeptical oh, back wow. in the days but now uh it's changing yeah and you know like celebrity power is really important you know it is because how it else is. would like um, a regular person um like maybe some in some cases even without internet access right how else would they find find out about this causes yeah yeah well i just think that is i think it's so cool that you're sort of in a lot of ways leading that charge and it's you know even though you, you were like well the you know the meetups are kind of small it's only 10 or 20 people like that mm -hmm. those are the types of things though that start and have a ripple effect mm -hmm. and can make such a positive impact long term on a culture um so i just think what you're doing is so awesome yeah i am i'm not of course, actively engaged right anymore with uh, that uh, online community, unfortunately, just, you know, because I'm so busy with Globin. But um, yeah, I was like super stoked, like my friends who I've met through, um, I call it Rus Innovator, through that community, um, like they started their own Impact Hub in Moscow. Are you familiar with Impact Hub? I'm not. So Impact Hub is a co-working space, right? You familiar with co-working Yeah, places? yeah, we have a lot yeah. of those around here. They're yeah. very popular. But Impact Hub is uh, kind of focuses more on social entrepreneurs and nonprofits. So you know, uh, different co-working spaces they can have their own themes. You know, some some will be like for techies or something like that, or like yeah. for art people. But Impact Hub, uh, because of its name, it's all about social impact. So a lot of like nonprofits or s social business startups would uh, you know would have an office there. And my friend started Impact Hub in Moscow a couple of years ago. That is so, so awesome. Yeah, you can you can see you can see already the progress just in that aspect. That is really cool. I mean, yeah, that that says so much. And those are the yeah, I just think I can't wait to kind of see how it kind of evolves and continues to grow and change over the next few years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, me, me too. Uh, I. I'm super excited to see that, uh, you know, Impact Hub succeed. I'm seeing, like, uh, my other friend started, like, a charity shop in Moscow. And it's, like, she already opened, like, three stores um, uh, in two years. Wow. So, yeah, so it's really very inspiring, you know. So what is on the docket? What's it, what's what's your plan for this year? What are your big goals for this year for both you, maybe personally and professionally, or for Globin? Mm -hmm. uh, well, one of my most exciting projects, uh, what we want to um, make it happen. So we are uh, trying to get fair trade certification, fair oh, trade uh, federation certification, uh, because we've been part of this community for a few years already. We go to conferences every year. Uh, most of our partners are certified by them. 
So we want to get a certification ourselves. Um, and also, uh, I want to, my goal is to produce, you know, a social impact report uh, for 2017 and kind of uh, measure the products, uh, the progress of some of our artisan groups, you know, kind of put numbers on our impact. You know, like last year we found out that uh, we've sent to our customers uh, more than 40,000 baskets from Oaxaca. Wow. So that's exciting. Or uh, our order of the upcycled tote from Ghana helped uh, recycle 365,000 water bags, water sachets that uh, in Ghana they use instead of plastic water bottles. That is so, so awesome. Yeah, so I want to share those like super exciting and impactful numbers uh, with our customers. That is so great. And I just mm. can't. Um, I can't wait to see what you guys continue to, how you guys continue to grow and impact uh, different communities. And um, like I said, I, I have gotten a couple boxes from you guys and have loved every single one of them. And I've given a couple as gifts and I always get so many compliments. I'm like, this is so, this is so neat. This is so unique. So I love sharing, mm-hmm. um, sharing you guys with, with friends and family and, and all of that. Yeah, that's great to hear. And um, one of the my favorite like customer comments about their artisan box experience is that they feel a connection with artisans, right? Because with artisan box, you get the, this artisan brochure, right? Yeah, that tells you the story of each artisan behind each product. So um, our customers really enjoy that. Yes, I love that. So how can people connect with you personally or um, Globe and online? What's the best way for people to uh, keep in touch with you? Mm-hmm. So my favorite um, tool is Facebook. As I mentioned uh, on Facebook over the last few years, we managed to really kind of uh, grow a community. So we are super responsive there. We sometimes even do Facebook live videos. Uh, so Facebook is a great way to connect with us. Um, I personally also have a Twitter account. Um, it's Lithaka, L-I-T-H-A-C-A, and Instagram with the same uh, name, where I sometimes post some spoilers about our products or samples, things like that. And um, yeah, just uh, email us at supportedglobin.com. We have an awesome team of two people who are pretty quick to respond to any question, comments. And if, for example, if you're like a small if you're an artisan group, right, an organization that works with artisans in developing countries, mm-hmm. you can email us at partners at globin.com uh, and see if we can feature your products in the artisan box. Awesome. Lisa, thank you so much. I just so appreciate you taking the time to talk with me. And I can't wait to just keep up with what you guys are doing and continue to support you guys and see how you guys are growing and making an impact. Thank you so much, Mal. It was really fun talking to you. Hey, guys, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Lisa. I had so much fun talking with her and learning more about their ethically made products, how they curate their artisan boxes, and even a little bit about the culture in Russia and how it's changing and shifting and sort of the ripple effect that Lisa is creating. As always, thank you guys for tuning into the show week after week. 
You have no idea how much I appreciate it. If you wouldn't mind taking a moment just to go over to iTunes and leave us a review. Let us know what you're loving. Uh, Let us know if there's any guests you'd like to see on the show. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at at stillbeingmolly. Let me know uh, what you loved about the episode and be sure to leave Lisa some love and let her know what kind of an impact this episode made on you. I'll see you guys next week. Bye.